Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Amy Jimenez-Marquez. Amy is a design director at Compass, a real estate technology company that's on a mission to help everyone find their place in the world. There, Amy leads a team of UX professionals that are crafting clear, usable solutions for complex problems that real estate agents, staff and their clients have. Before Compass, Amy invested four and a half years at Amazon, most of which was as the UX design manager for Alexa's personality. There are bound to be a few great stories there. Prior to Alexa, Amy worked on the Amazon Flex design team, where she was the senior UX design lead. In that role, she helped to improve the delivery driver experience by streamlining processes and product experience for what became a $20 billion plus global logistics platform. A generous contributor to the global UX community, Amy is the owner and publisher of Boxes and Arrows, a thoughtful peer-written publication that's devoted, devoted to provoking thinking and pushing limits when it comes to the practice, innovation and discussion of design. Amy also kindly volunteers her time as a mentor on ADP List and as a submission reviewer for the Information Architecture Conference. As if she didn't have enough on her plate, she is also currently working with the School of Visual Concepts in Seattle as an instructor on the fundamentals of information architecture. Rumor has it that Amy can also occasionally be found performing improvisational comedy. Who knows where this might go? Well, Let's find out. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brandon. That was a great intro. Well, hey, look, it's it's all you. It was uh, it was all your accomplishments, <laughs> and there are some so many great things in there. I'd love to dive into today. Last I heard, you lived on a mini farm, which, as we call in New Zealand here, a lifestyle block, and you have a peacock, I believe, or had at the time that I that I, I heard this I called do. Kevin. Is Kevin still annoying right. the neighbours? Yes, Kevin is still annoying the neighbors happily, and he has a uh, he has a girlfriend, Ella, a peahen. I mean, there's no little pea chicks running around, but yeah, Kevin's still around. Every morning, uh, my routine is you know I feed, I give the dogs a treat, I give the cats a treat, I go outside and I give the the pea owl a treat. So it's it's fun to just have them greet me in the morning at the door. Do Kevin and Ella have appropriate privacy? Yes, yes, they have appropriate privacy. Okay, well. And they, uh, like like all peafowl, they roost in trees. So we have very mm. tall cedar trees around the house. And they sleep in the cedar tree that's right outside our bedroom window. So when they wake up, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Do they crow like like roosters? Like, how, how does this work? Not not really. Right, okay. Uh, relative, like, between, like, fall and early spring, they're relatively quiet. It's just when it gets, when the feathers all grow out and, and they're looking for love. <laughs> it, it gets noisy. They they crow quite a bit. Yeah, and I imagine it gets pretty nice and visual as well. They're quite spectacular birds. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Hey, Amy, I thought we would actually do something a little bit different today to start the show. Although we can continue to speak about Kevin. He sounds fantastic. And I, I love the <laughs> fact that he's annoying your neighbors. Uh, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea I had last night. I think I mentioned when I was prepping before we started recording that I had this moment of I feel like everything's coming together for this chat. And I suppose we're about to find out whether that is the case or not. Um, <laughs> this makes me a little uncomfortable, I have to admit, in a good way. I understand you have a Master of Arts in Theatre, specifically in directing, and that you spent the first part of your career acting and directing, in particular theatre. Is that true? That's correct. Yes, that's true. I also understand, as I mentioned in in your introduction, that you're a fan of improv. Is this also true? Yes. Yes? Uh, It's not just a fan, but I've, I've performed it for nearly 30 years. How about we do a performance right now? We could. Um, uh, improvisational comedy is very different from stand-up comedy in that we need audience feedback. Oh, um, okay. So I'm not sure how we would get audience feedback for this. Well, it could be asynchronous feedback, <laughs> I suppose. Oh, my goodness. You, 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 <laughs> you, you see that I've clearly I've clearly not done enough home re- homework around how improv works. There I was thinking that we could do this, you and me, but clearly that's not going to be the case. Well, you could say that this whole conversation is improvisational. That's true, actually. That's very true. I, I did actually <laughs> recently ask an, an, another guest if they wanted to sing us into the into the show, which they weren't ready for, so that didn't go ahead either. So I'm not I'm not not disappointed and not surprised. That's okay. But uh, honestly, if you've ever seen the show, whose line is it anyway? That's a lot of what like short form improvisational comedy is. There's like this whole long form versus short form. There's snobbery about it. I do short form because it's fun and it's engaging. Long form is much more in your head and psychological. Right. Uh, but Whose Line Is It Anyway was a lot like short form improvisational comedy. Good show. I remember that. Uh, probably many reruns on TV when I was growing up here in New Zealand. Yeah, very good. I, w- I was just thinking we'd have a game of yes and. <laughs> that was about as far as my no- oh. knowledge of improv went, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> anyway, so Amy, I understand that you grew up in Southern Texas and also grew up uh, as a Southern Baptist. And that is correct. Yeah. And and like, I mean, obviously, I come from little old New Zealand, you know, half a world away. And that that sort of, I suppose, that knowledge of, of what that's like, I'm somewhat lacking. And I, I wondered if um, to explain to someone from like me halfway across the world, what that's like in three words growing up as a Southern Baptist in Southern oh. Texas, what would you say? <sighs> Inspiring yet repressive. Mm. <laughs> Tell me more. I think it's great to have a good foundation in a belief system. It really kind of helps guide you on a path between right and wrong, between ethical and unethical. But at the same time, any achievement I gained in my life, I was trained to not say thank you if somebody told me, hey, you did a great job singing today, or you did a great job with this. I was trained to attribute it to God and not take credit for myself. So that like set me up for a whole mess of a life of never wanting to take credit for anything I did. Has that changed? Absolutely, <laughs> thankfully. And what changed? Yeah, I met some amazing. I, well, I met some amazing mentors um, about eleven years ago or so. I met design professional by the name of Christina Woodkey. She's amazing, and she teaches at the at Stanford. She teaches the D school classes there. And I met her at the. It was then the IA Summit. It's now the IA Conference. But she has from day one. She was amazing, and she basically just told me I need to learn how to say thank you and let it go. And it's just been great. Like there's a lot of things I would not have done in my life, and like like 
being brave enough to take the job at Amazon because it was kind of intimidating. Again, that was something that she was very encouraging about. So just a wonderful, strong mentor. And I understand that there is a even deeper connection you have with her and that's Boxes and Arrows was originally founded by Christina and you took that over a number of years back. How did that come to be? How was that conversation? So Christina had a lot on her plate and Boxes and Arrows is volunteer run. And it's always hard to find volunteers because volunteers are always volunteering everywhere and it's hard to get commitments. So she was just kind of really tired of carrying the publication. She had an amazing editor um, working with her, Cinnamon Melfort, who's amazing, uh, who's since moved on to, to work at Capital One and became too busy to continue editing. And Christina was talking to me at, I think at one of these conferences we were at. She said, hey, I'm going to shutter the, the magazine or the publication. I'm going to just close it and stop it. I said, no, 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 you can't do that. There are universities that use your material for their programs. You cannot do that and she said well do you want to take it on would you take it on i'm like um <laughs> yes i <laughs> do that um, was it a so yes with some talking, hesitation or was it a yes let's do it well, straight away it was a yes let's do it but what have i gotten myself into <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say i didn't know the first thing about running uh online ux publication i knew how to blog something for myself but that that was the limit of it and what would be the what's the what's the big difference if you could attribute the gap between being an individual blogger to actually running a publication like just how big a leap is that it's it's a pretty big leap because you need to have good connections with people who are contributing authors. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to reach out to people or, or accept proposals from them and vet them to see is this appropriate for what we're for the audience we're trying to reach. Like right now with my volunteers, I'm trying to come up with you know, what, how should we, you know, set our vision for the next, you know, five years? What do we want to accomplish in the next five years? It's like running a business that doesn't make any money. <laughs> and that, I mean, because we, we don't, like, we just have like a little donation button on the website. We don't ask for money. Any of the stuff we have on Medium is free. We don't put the, like a paywall on it. So it's, it's a labor of love for all, all the people who volunteer for it. Because it's just a worthwhile place to have information gathered. Uh, there's with the uh, dissolution of the Information Architecture Institute, there's really not a center of gravity for IA, for information architecture. So like World IA Day, the organizers there reached out to us and said, hey, can we have some kind of a partnership? And we want to make sure that we cultivate those relationships in, across the community internationally so that Boxes and Arrows is a place where people can come and learn about things that maybe aren't taught at the university level. There's a, there's a lot missing in information architecture at the university level. There's not a lot of voice design out there that you can read about right now. So I want to make sure we were bringing that stuff into Boxes and Arrows. What does that say about the state of design education if something as critical and fundamental as information architecture isn't really being done justice to, well, to the designers that are coming through? Now, I don't know all the programs, mm. but I know that there are some very fast-tracked programs where they skim over information architecture and just kind of lump it in with interaction design, which is not the same thing. I think it's really important that you, to understand how the systems on the back end work, to understand how you can structure your website or your app, because if you, if you don't have a solid foundation, it falls apart. I'm really thrilled with the School of Visual Concepts and that they have this whole segment of information architecture that they treat, teach, or that, you know, I, I'm one of the few people they have you know a few a few people who who teach the i program they, they don't want to burn us out so they kind of go through you know uh let, let us you know rest for a semester or two it it's it is disturbing because so many um ethical decisions can be made at the i level that it's important for people to understand what you're doing when you're setting up a structure yeah it's, it doesn't have that same appeal as the visual aspects of design well this is it's the invisible work yeah, yeah. and that that's one of the things that that i that i 
talk about is, is that sometimes the invisible work is the most important work. Yeah, hundred percent. Hey, I just want to come back to where where we started, not with Kev- Kevin. Oh, yeah. A step further forward than that, just regarding you and theatre. Now, yes, I remember reading, or maybe I was listening to something that you were you were um, speaking at. You were recounting it wasn't until you were twenty seven or twenty eight when you felt that you could do something more with your career than theatre. And I, I was curious about that because that 20, age of 26, 27, 28 is a common age range for people to make or not make um, big, de- big decisions about who they want to be. You're sort of getting to the end of, of your 20s and starting to figure out yourself a little bit more or at least figure out that you're uncomfortable with what it is that you're doing. What was it that changed for you after being you know, so in love and so engrossed in theatre for so many years? Well, moving to Los Angeles will knock the love of it right out of you. Um, so, I'm, <laughs> so I was living in the North Hollywood area and working for a special effects company. And really, really what changed my mind was the creative director there. Because I because I had some stage design in my background from theater classes, I knew how to use AutoCAD and some some programs like that. And she said, hey, you're pretty good with this, you know, graphic stuff. Why don't you, you know, build us a website? I think those things are going to stick around. This is in the late 90s. And I said, well, I don't know the first thing about it, but I'm going to learn it. And so I went home that evening and started looking at the W3C schools and their tutorials in HTML, CSS, JavaScript. And from that Friday evening to that Sunday morning, I didn't go to sleep. I was so fascinated by it. And yeah, I just, I was just sucked into it. And I'd never felt, I'd never had anything that I was that passionate about outside of theater. And I thought to myself, this is amazing because not only am I using like the logical side of my brain, I can use logic to create creativity and to create art. And it was just like this, you know, light bulb moment of, okay, I'm doing this from now on. And it was just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I chose design, it chose me. So that's, that's where that started. (laughs) It has a, it has a pull to it doesn't it? Especially the internet around that time. I remember a a similar sort of feeling that I had when I discovered, I think it was, was it web monkeys? Does that ring a bell as well? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had a bunch of tutorials and I just remember that, that active creation, you know, using the machine and very simply being able to, to make something that's hugely powerful. And I think it's something that stays with me today. Um, Although it's kind of faded into the background because we have so many more layers of abstraction on top of it now. And clearly you've specialized as well since uh, becoming a, you know, being a web designer back in those days. It sounds like it wasn't that hard a decision for you, for you to make. It wasn't hard at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like I have to leave, leave theater. I can still do improv. And at the time I was single, I didn't have kids, so I could still do evening rehearsals if I wanted to. So it was, I was leaving the option of trying to do that as a profession rather than doing it vocationally. I'm curious, what do people close to you say when you started to move away from film and theater? So my brother was always the computer guy. He is a computer science professor. He specializes in branch prediction and microarchitecture. And when I started looking into computers, he said, I'm going to come out there and start acting if you do, if you keep looking into computers. Um, <laughs> so, and Did my he make good on his like, promise? No, he's, he's <laughs> a total, total introvert. He would not do that. Um, we, we are, as one of our teachers in high school said, we are like the sun and the moon, uh, that I'm, I'm extremely exuberant and outgoing and he's extremely withdrawn and private, but we are, we have a lot of similarities, but only in private, like when we talk to each other. But my, my brother was surprised that I wasn't going to stay in theater. And for many years, he kept referring to me as his sister, the actress. And I'm like, I've been doing web design for like 10 years now, like back then. 
And my mother wanted to know if I was sure that I should pursue my dreams. I said, well, you can have a new dream. It's okay. And that's also like, it was an aha moment for me to understand that there's not an age at which you can stop having new dreams. So because I was in my, you know, late twenties, it didn't mean that I had, I was stuck in a path. It meant that at any minute I can change my mind. I can say, no, I want to do this or no, I'm interested in that. And I have enough faith in myself to know that I can learn anything I set my mind to. And I was learning this really, um, I mean, just HTML felt just like English. It was just very structured English. And it just seemed like second nature. And I, I had always been almost a technophobe, really. My, my favorite thing about computers was the font. <laughs> but, but once I started learning um, HTML and CSS, it was, it was awesome. I didn't want to look back. You said that once you realized that you could, I think you said you could, you could do or be anything. And yeah. that's quite a powerful thought. And it's a thought that we seem to lose as we grow older. It's it's something that when you're a child that seem, anything seems possible to you, but somehow we seem to forget it or it gets beaten out of us. Yeah. How do we get that back? I That's a great question. I mean, for me, I just have, my mom was so supportive. My My mom was always the rock that told me I can do anything I put my mind to. I can be anything I want to be. And her voice is always in the back of my head when I want to try something new. It's like, you can do it. So, and I have like, a, like I'm a ridiculous optimist and that helps too, because I'm going to try things knowing I'll succeed. And even if I don't, it's a success because I learned something. <laughs> I like that. That's the ultimate framing, right? I can't lose. Right, right. It's win-win because if I, if I make it great, if I don't, I've learned. So that's just the way I approach things. It's annoying to some people I know. Oh, it's, it's necessary. I mean, sometimes we need people to annoy us to sort of kick us into gear and realize, help us realize that there's another way that we can be thinking about something. I want to fast forward a little bit now because you had another time in your life where you realized that you needed to make a change. And that was in 2016. And I believe mm. you, you came to the realization that you weren't happy in the design role or in your career at that stage where you were and what you were doing. And this involved... Uh, quite a massive period of change for you and your family. You ended up moving 2,000 miles, which we deal in kilometers here in New Zealand, which is even more than 2,000 kilometers away um, from where you had set up home in Texas all the way to Washington and Seattle. And you had to leave behind a life. Um, you had to leave behind friends uh, and all the other things that go with making a home somewhere. Before we get into what that was, what was, what that was like for you, what weren't you happy about? So I worked at a company called USAA, which is an amazing company. They are great to their employees. They're great to the members that, that have memberships with them. It's a, a auto insurance and banking and investments for military and their families in the U.S. And my dad was a captain in the Army in Vietnam. He was a medic. Um, and I had basically inherited USAA membership through him. So I knew about the company. And when I moved to work for that company, I knew I was going to go to a good company. I grew so much at that company. I spent nine years there. I felt like I had had almost four distinct careers there because of the different areas I worked with. Um, at, at the end, I was in the R&D space where I was leading an amazing design team in design-led and data-informed innovation projects where they were altruistic, like we were teaching people who live paycheck to paycheck how to start saving money, Think, you know, building programs that help them learn that. But I felt like I had a lot of mentees, but no mentors left. And it's not to say that I can't learn from my peers, but I felt like I wasn't, like I'd hit a ceiling of growth there and I just got restless and I, and I got comfortable and I don't like being comfortable. I know it's weird. I don't like being comfortable. I got too comfortable. 
and I needed a change. And on my nine-year anniversary, it, you know, LinkedIn always tells everybody when it's your work anniversary, a recruiter from Amazon who'd been pinging me like once a year for four years said, happy anniversary, is it time for a change? And I was like, oh man, that's good. That's really good. That deserves a response. And I said, okay, that, that was a good one. Um, what do you got? <laughs> And, and she me. said, well, I, yeah, and she said, well, I have this role in last mile. I said, oh, I have a friend trip who works there. And she said, she's the hiring manager. Let me get him on the phone. And I was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> going then, too fast here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the trip like <laughs> calls me immediately and says, I didn't know you were on the market. And I said, I didn't say I was on the market. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and because I, this was, this is a huge thing. It's the role was in Seattle. And he, he talked me into, he's like, what's the worst that could happen? You get a free trip to Seattle and you don't want the job. Okay. Oh, he's good. Trip's good. Yeah, he's he? really good. He was really yeah. good. <laughs> uh, but I went, I, I did the interview loop. I loved the process. It was very, it's like an extrovert stream because you've got this panel of people listening to you as you present your portfolio work. Uh, and then you have all these one-on-ones. Um, and I really, I mean, that's, that's almost typical now for loops. But for me, that was kind of a new thing. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And oh, so it's like I, being on stage, I imagine. Kind of, yeah. And you get the feedback from me. And I was just having such great conversations with people. And they're very smart people. I really love working with smart people. And uh, I mean, I worked with brilliant people at USA as well, but but I could learn in a whole different direction here. And I had to go home and have a very serious conversation with my husband. And I've always been the career focused one. He worked because he wanted to make money. Uh, he's good at data science, but it's just not a passion. He loves tinkering on cars and he loves, you know, um, designing furniture and things that you do at home mostly. And he said, look, you're you're the one who has the career that you're passionate about. We should go where your career goes. And this is an opportunity you're probably not going to get again. This is like a once in a lifetime opportunity to go work on this on this product with somebody you already know at a big company like this. So we should do it. So we, we talked to the kids and I told them, you know what, I've, you know, let me, I'm going to go for three months ahead of you because you need to finish the school year. If I hate it, I will resign and I'll come back. And my poor son who had a girlfriend at the time was middle school. That's like not, you can't have a girlfriend. We can't actually go on dates, but a girl he liked. My son was really upset and he's like, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. And I think he talked like until they were physically moving out of the house, he kept thinking that we weren't going to move. So it was a rough transition for them. So the kids spent a couple months in Arizona with their grandparents and my husband came up and we kind of set up the house and it, you know, we've stayed here ever since. And Tripp set me up with my mentor, Farrah Houston, who was leading the Alexa personality team at the time. And this probably goes into a, a question you have. I'm just going to go ahead and talk about it. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Farrah and I would have one-on-ones. And a couple of times she had mentioned this content writing position or content editor position she had in her team. And I kept giving her the names of friends of mine that were in content. And like the third time she mentioned it, she like hit her hand on the table where we were eating lunch and said, <laughs> join my team. And I said, oh, oh, so I'm, I'm not a writer though. She's like, well, you, you write online and I don't care what your title is here. I don't really need an editor. I need somebody who can help my team understand they are a design team. Um, because they were all called like content writers at the time or editorial writers. Um, and they were really designers because they were thinking of the, the, what happens next? Like what context is the person in when they're approaching the device? Um, why would they be asking these questions? What might they ask next? We need to make sure we have answers for that. They were really thinking logically about an end-to-end experience, but they didn't realize it was design. And how did so you help like, well, them to realize that? How how did what was what was the light bulb moment for that team when you got involved? 
Well, I learned through conversations they were scared of the word design because to them mm. that's like visual design and graphic design, things that you can see. So I started workshopping with them. And so I, I just called them like think differently workshops or just, you know, structured brainstorming workshops. And, and eventually they got more and more comfortable with the term design because I told them what we're doing here is design. And so I would say there's, there were a, a big group of, of the team that were very comfortable considering themselves as conversational designers. And there were a couple of people on the team who were like, I really am a writer and that's okay. Because if, if what you really want to focus on is the written word and perfected the written word, that's fantastic. But we have this other group of people who really are working on the back and forth conversation. And of course, then you have buoy designers, um, voice user interface designers, which are the people who know like the technical back end of it as well, not just, not just how to write prompts, but they understand linguistics. So I think people don't really understand there's a, there's a difference between conversational design and voice user interaction design. And, and it's a lot to do with linguistics and technical proficiency, understanding the backend systems. I do want to come to Alexa and get into that in more detail, but I'm, mm -hmm. I don't want to let you get away with glossing over just what a monumental shift it was to go from life in Texas to, to Seattle and Washington. You made it sound like it was all a box of roses as far as your relationship was concerned with your husband, but you've been quite open on your blog that there were, although he wasn't as career driven necessarily as you, that there were areas of tension that you had to resolve. And I can't imagine that there'll be people, there'll be, I imagine that there will be people listening that may want to put themselves in a similar situation or may have found themselves in a similar situation. I just want to ask you, what were the surprising areas of tension that emerged? And as a as a couple, what was it? And this is kind of maybe getting slightly out the remit of UX and design, but yeah, okay. I think we're that's like the whole person, right? Like, what was mm -hmm. the what were what were the ways that you managed to navigate that together? Yeah. So not only did he leave his job at USAA, but he actually stopped working which I actually, I asked him to stop working because the kids were going to be in a transition. They weren't at an age where they could drive themselves around and, and they really needed somebody to be home and help. And I think his fear was that he wouldn't be contributing enough to the family. And it's honest, it's a, it's a, you know, valid fear because, you know, he, he doesn't like housework. Nobody likes housework. Well, actually my aunt Karen does like doing laundry, but I don't know. That's just crazy. I think I secretly do as well, but don't, don't tell my wife, please <laughs> okay. don't tell my wife. I like nobody likes housework. Everybody likes a clean house. <laughs> but but so just talking through talking with him a lot about the partnership that it's it's not my money. It's our money. It's always been our money from the day we got married. It's our money. So whatever I earn, he's earning. Um, and she should, shouldn't separate that from him going to an office to work and just, you know, being there to support the kids, being there to drive the kids, making sure they can, you know, be involved in sports if they want to or theater if they want to. His job is to be a good dad and to raise decent human beings. And my job is to be a good mom and raise decent human beings. But I also do this thing that earns income. And that doesn't mean that I'm more valuable than him in the, in the family. It, it just it's a, just a fact. It's just what we do. Um, he does amazing. Like I, I could never do. He can fix anything. Like our with our washer or dryer breaks, he can take it apart, fix it himself. I can't do that, and that saves a ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, this is so a big thing, right? I mean, this is illustrating how there's a lot of change going on at the moment, and we're living through it. And it probably is the case for many generations that preceded us as well. There's been change happen, but there are there's a fundamental shift happening at the moment when it comes to, to gender more broadly, but also the roles that we play at home. And 
I wouldn't say I'm in a similar situation. I run a business. My wife's a, um, or soon to be a consultant as a, as a doctor, as I believe your dad was also a doctor. Am I right? Yes, he was a surgeon. Yeah, right. So yeah, my wife's about to become a surgeon. And we are also entertaining these conversations about what it, what it means to be family and how are we each going to play to our strengths and what sacrifices should we be making for each other and for the the greater good, so to speak. So I think this is a hugely meaningful topic for us to be discussing because there'll be many people in design that may be facing similar situations and wrestling with these issues. And and without the support of my husband, I couldn't do half the things I do, like running mm. boxes and arrows. I said yes to that without talking to him, and then I talked to him about it. And he said, and he basically, um, I think I wrote about this in the article. Is when we moved, when we talked about moving to Seattle, he said, "Amy, my success is your success, uh, or your success is my success." So, what, if I'm successful, he's successful. He considers that a success. And and without his support, without him being there, without him being okay with me, like going to all these conferences, or you know the family sleeps in on Saturdays. So I get up at six and I start working on boxes and arrows because that's just, I want to, it's not because I have to, but he's supportive of that. It's, you know, and, and we have to find our balance. Like every once in a while, he'll help pull me back from the edge of working way too much and tell me, Hey, come on, you've got to, you've got to, you know, secure your private space, your family time, uh, make sure that you're fighting for that. Cause I, I mean, I give my team lectures about this all the time. Like I don't want you working more than eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. If you're working overtime, I need to know about it because then you're <laughs> doing too much. I, I, you know, make sure that my team is taking care of themselves and he makes sure that I take care of myself. Every leader needs someone else to make sure that they take care of themselves. We're often quite good at giving the advice and terrible at taking it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can see why you and Trip actually got on so well because you both work <laughs> way too much, as far as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, look, I want to come to this. You know, no one gets up at six a.m. on a Saturday and pours their heart and soul into a publication unless they have passion. I just want to come to something that you did a few years ago now, which I think was maybe five or six years ago, where you surveyed a hundred design practitioners in your network, and you found that ninety-one percent of them were passionate about their careers. But a third, 33% of them were not passionate about their jobs. Now there's a bit of there's a bit of a gap there. And I was curious to know from the, your findings and what you discovered, what what were the things that were getting in people's way of actually feeling passionate about their jobs? Um, I, one of the top things was company culture. They didn't feel like they had a supportive company culture. Uh, they didn't feel like the company cared about the employees there. And of course, along with that went um, having a direct manager that wasn't supportive or that they did not get along with. I think, you know, they say people leave managers, not companies. And I think it was a combination of having a bad company culture and then having a manager on top of that, that you, you're not getting along with who's, who's exhibiting all the attributes of the bad culture of that company. So those are external f factors, some of them imposed and some of them not able to be removed by those individuals. What are what were some of the the blockers that people have experienced? Maybe you've experienced them yourself. Yourself that you realize that this is actually something that I can change. You know, stop, stopping short of necessarily leaving. That's clearly something that you can do. That is inside your control. But how can you re, how can you rekindle that passion if you're if you're just not feeling it? Well, if it's if you've got a toxic company culture and a bad manager, you should bounce. You should you should yeah. <laughs> uh, inter interview a lot. And, and get out of there um, and save save your own mental health. But if you've got maybe a bad manager, but a decent company, you need to tell you confront your manager, tell them what 
user situation, behavior, and impact conversation, where in the situation, you, you're, the manager is exhibiting this behavior and it has this negative impact on you. And if that conversation doesn't fix things, then you go one level up and say, look, I'm having issues with my manager. This is what I'm seeing. I've had these conversations. It's scary to do, but people forget that like your executive leadership isn't psychic. They, they don't know what you don't tell them and they can't give you what you don't ask for. So you have to talk to them. That's a huge point. People can't read our minds. We have yeah. to actually tell them what's going on for us. Going over someone's manager, going over your manager to another manager, I imagine that's not an easy thing for people to do. Not in general. It's it's not uh, like for me, I hit a point in my career where I was like, oh, I'm just going to do what's right. So I don't care what happens. So I just start <laughs> talking like, like at USA, I talked like to a senior vice president. And then I went to my manager and said, here's what I did. Um, because I, I, I knew he would have my back. That's the thing is I had a great manager who had my back, but I also knew the senior vice president was the only one who could affect the change that I needed. So there was no point in going to the director or the vice president. I need to go to the senior vice president. Um, mm, now, not everybody can do that. Top. Yeah. Not everybody can do that because I, I, it's a, a place of privilege that I was like, I don't care if I lose my job. I need to get this done right. <laughs> and, uh, if, if you're not comfortable talking with your manager though, or with your manager's manager, um, you can talk to human resources, although there's been a lot in the press lately about um, human resources not potentially not being very helpful, uh, especially when it comes to the large tech companies. They're very much working for the risk uh, risk management of the company rather than for your happiness or your well-being, um, which is why, I mean, personally, I would just say talk to your manager's manager. It's a safer conversation. Do people need to be passionate about their jobs? No, no. Some people, I, a lot of designers are passionate about their jobs. And I'm not sure. I think it's because you're making people's lives, like the definition of design is to make people's lives easier through technology. But in wanting to make people's lives easier, there's like an ethos with that. And there's a kind of a passion that goes with that. I have known the very rare designer that's like, you know, I enjoy it, but it's not a passion of mine. And that's fine. I mean, if, if you want to, if you're working because you make a decent income and that helps you go on the trips you want to take or spend the time you want to with your family, that's fantastic. I'm the, I'm the weirdo. I love, I'm super passionate about the design and I, I don't work on something if I'm not passionate about it. Yeah. It's a rule that I live by and it consumes so many waking hours, but I, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed of it. I, I'm actually, I'm actually quite fond of spending my time doing things like preparing for podcasts at 10 PM the night before making sure that I've got everything sorted. I think you just have to be wired a certain way and you're right. Not everyone is wired that way. Yeah. You're obviously someone who's clearly confident. You talked about there just going, going to your VP at USAA um, to get something changed or try to change something. You were willing to risk your job. You said you also acknowledge that you're in a position of privilege to be able to do that at the time. Not everyone is going to be in that same position, but it wasn't always the case. I believe you didn't always feel this confident. I just want That's to go true. back to something. And it was around about 2016 that you wrote on your blog and I'll quote you now. And you said, I no longer feel like a poser. And you went on to say, I know what I'm doing. I do it really well. And I mentor and grow other amazing designers. Where did that feeling of being a poser or feeling like you were being a poser come from? Well, I, you know, there wasn't a school for UX design when I was learning this stuff. It was very organic. I taught myself everything I know about design whether it's, you know, starting in Photoshop 4 or whatever <laughs> at the time, mm -hmm. whether it's... We Do you remember Corel. those loading screens? Oh my gosh. 
They were beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, we used Corel Draw. I've used like, you know, Quark Express, all the different weird applications. Uh, and of course, now we all use Figma, apparently. But having self-taught and with a master's in theater and enjoying my job so much, I kept thinking that I was going to get caught uh, as a fake because I loved my job so much. How, why are they paying me to do this? And I don't know if it's more common for women or if, or if a lot of guys feel this too. But I just felt like my achievements maybe weren't my own. And, and I have trouble, I still to this day have trouble accepting any sort of recognition at work where I can't acknowledge my team. Because like an improv, everyone can see, the audience can see that it was this entire troop of people who put this uh, thing together, who, who made you laugh, who made you feel things. When you're getting an award at your company for being one of the top people in your in your organization or whatever, that's uncomfortable because there's so many people who helped you get there. There's mentors, there's coworkers, there's managers. Um, and so that's where I think, and also, you know, being brought up in the Southern Baptist religion where I'm not ask, allowed to yeah. take credit for anything. Yeah. Um, it was really hard. It took me a while and it took talking to a lot of other women too, who are in design to realize that I, there's nothing, I mean, yes, they should pay me and yes, I'm doing a good job and yes, I'm good at what I do. And I've been doing it for a long time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just took a while. I don't know if that there was one aha moment, but I gradually realized that I'm okay. <laughs> and there was no need to apologize. Yeah. I bet you had some good uh, award acceptance speeches written that acknowledged a few people. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trick, right? If you're going to get the Oscar, you've got to have a good speech. Right, right. Well, actually, when I, I got, I hadn't I got an award at USA that was in front of the entire like technical team. Right? It was like a big organization. And when I went on stage, the, the CEO who was presenting it said, I know what you're going to say. It was a team effort. And he said, because anybody in your position would want to acknowledge their team. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, he knows me. <laughs> so that kind of set me at ease. But at the same time, it's still awkward. I don't mind receiving praise on a stage where you can see everybody. I have a little bit of trouble receiving it where it's just me. Yeah, under it's understandable. I have been curious about this subject of imposter syndrome for a little while now. And I I suppose I, I discussed this with Darren Hood on the show a few weeks ago, and he has a very specific view about it in terms of how he frames imposter syndrome, which is that imposter syndrome is only felt by those who are at the top of their field yet still don't feel like they belong. So that's clearly quite a narrow definition and doesn't really speak to how a lot of people feel when it comes to feeling uncomfortable about the position they find themselves in and that self-doubt that creeps in uh, there that you spoke of, of, of wondering, hey, are they going to eventually discover me? They're paying me to do this amazing job. This is almost too too good to be true. Are we really imposters though? Are we really posers? Or do we just come to a realization, although not with great clarity, that we have some gaps, that we just have a few things to learn and that makes us uncomfortable? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're actually imposters. I think people... So Here's something I do with my teams is I have like a self-analysis tool for um, how proficient you are at these several different um, skills, both technical and soft skills in design. And I've adjusted it per team everywhere I go. And always, always the junior designer rates themselves super high on everything. And the very senior designer rates themselves low on everything. And it's, for me, this tool is a conversation starter. So when the junior designer says, the, it, it, the scale is from not learning 
um, to, you know, to learning, to mastering, to could teach it. So the, the junior designer is like, oh, I could teach usability or I, or I could teach user <laughs> research. And so I asked them, what's the definition of user research? Well, I've, I've seen usability tests. So I could totally, you know, teach people about them. I'm like, so this is where we start a conversation. I say, okay, here's what user research actually is. And I you take them through the litany of the millions of tools you can use and the millions of techniques you can use. You know, that's hyperbole, of course. But this is what <laughs> user research really is. Where do you think you are in terms of user research? And then they like bring it back down. So you don't know what you don't know when you're a junior designer. When mm-hmm. you're a senior designer, you know there's so much more out there that you don't know. And yeah, you're conscious of your incompetence, right? There's that moment where you're like, oh. There's a lot of things I don't know here. Yeah, yeah. And then you get to a point, though, when you are conscious of your competence. And once you get over that hump of being conscious conscious of your incompetence and focus on your strengths and realize that that's what you lean into, it's a healthier place to be. I think you're very kind with your junior designers not to start with the definition of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Not at all. No, it's because it's not. <laughs> It's not. It's it's a not knowing what you don't know. I've met people that have the total Dunning Kruger effect, and they're not necessarily <laughs> not necessarily you know apprentice designers. They're yeah, they're something else. But when when you're talking about you know very entry level designers or even interns, they there's so much out there they don't know about. So they think they they are mastering all these things that they only have scratched the surface on. One of the moments in your career, and I know this will speak to a lot of other people's careers in design as well, is that moment where as a practitioner, you get asked maybe one too many times, or you have that thought in the shower, should I stay on the individual contributor track or should I move into management? Do I have what it takes? And this is often an area of someone's career where there is a lot of doubt about what you will give up and leave behind and whether or not you actually have the competence to move into that role of managing other people's careers and do that successfully. Now, you, that's something that you have done and you've done that very successfully. But I also know that you've acknowledged the fact that it wasn't necessarily an easy thing for you to do, but you've gone from in, in seven short years and not to say there's anything wrong with being an individual contributor, I just want to make that clear. You've gone from being a lead designer to a design director. So that's quite a leap. It's quite a new set of skills that you've had to learn and to develop and to hone and build on your already strong competencies and design and empathy and all the other things that have made you the leader that you are. Was it easy though to decide to put down the tools and to move into management and put your hand up for those responsibilities? It was a gradual progression. Starting as a design lead, I was leading a team of 10 designers without having direct management. So I, so I managed their, their workflows, but I didn't manage mm. them as um, individuals. What I would do is make sure that they had all the interesting things and the IC work I took was the garbage because I wanted to make sure that they were working on things that they, they could grow in. And I would you know sit down and have team meetings every week about what was coming down the pipeline talk to people about what they're most interested in, where they haven't had an opportunity to grow. Like you haven't worked on mobile yet, so let's get you on a mobile project. You haven't worked on this backend system. I know it's not glamorous, but let's get you on that. And then any ticky tacky compliance things I would take on for myself because those are annoying and and often about information architecture decisions. And I knew that, you know, I, I could do that. And I think that actually helped me work myself out of IC work by making sure that I took on the the least 
the least interesting tasks, the, the, one, the ones that were most, mostly like maintenance or compliance or any kind of, of regulations. Um, I'm only the, laughing here because it sounds like you, you intentionally made yourself hate the individual contributor role I, I so that you could move into management. <laughs> I, I didn't. What I, what I wanted to do was make sure that my designers were enjoying what they were doing. Um, it wasn't as, as important for me to enjoy it because I, I could you know, do anything and you know just get it out the door. Um, what I really cared about was helping them grow. And so that it, was, it made it a bit easier to like let go of the visual interface. I still make sure to this day, I make sure I keep some information architecture tasks on my on my table or some process improvement tasks or something where that where you where I can make a nice, you know, diagram. <laughs> but I think that it's important to understand like what can't you let go of? Because for me, I'm not going to take a job that won't let me make it what I need it to be. Like, yeah, this title is design director, but here's what I'm going to do with this job. And if I can't define that, then I'm not going to take that job. So that self-determination, that ability to sort of set your own boundaries and how you'll contribute is quite important to you. Yes, very much so. And I, I leave jobs and I leave managers who don't let me determine what the best course for my path is and who only want me to conform to what their idea is. Like, like if they have no knowledge of design themselves and they are a director I'm reporting to and they literally know nothing about design and try to make me do some program management work or something like that, I'm going to leave because that's that's not where my passion is. That's not what I want to do. That's not even a strength of mine. So because I cannot determine my own path, bye. Let that be a warning to any current or future hiring managers <laughs> of Amy's. You've been told. Yeah. <laughs> what was the area that stretched you the most moving from that IC role into leadership effectively into that leadership of others, you know, having to do what you did where you were sort of bearing the cross, so to speak, of the crap work so you could ensure that they were successful? I would say moving to the Alexa voice team, uh, the Alexa personality team, it stretched me in many, many ways. It was a brand new subject matter. It was a brand new type of design. It was helping a team understand design, the definition of design, and, and move them closer to that. And then on top of that, I also had the UX designers under me who were building backend systems. So it stretched me all over the place. And it was just fascinating work. And it, it really helped me let go of IC work because I didn't have time for that. Um, uh, the, the thing I held on to was we had uh, people in the team who wrote jokes for Alexa to tell. And I loved joke reviews. We, we would, every Friday, we'd have like almost like a writer's room where the content designers or the, the conversational designers would gather. Some, we'd invite engineers, we'd invite the PMs, whoever wanted to come. And we would sit there and listen to the jokes that people had written during the week in Alexa's voice. So we'd program it into our little, you know, uh, testing interface. And we had a person on the team, Will North. If he laughed, the joke was good. We could just, because <laughs> he got such a good laugh too. Um, but we, we'd all give it kind of thumbs up, thumbs down, thumb, thumb sideways. Thumbs up meant good to go as is. Thumb sideways means let's workshop this and, and improve it as a, as a team. Thumbs down was like, there's nothing mm -hmm. there. Let's, let's, you know, get that out of the, like, like we can't. It's, it's, it's too British. It's too <laughs> British sense of, it's well, too you, much of a British sense of humor. Usually it was too vulgar because the team liked to slip things in right. there to shock me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Are you paying attention, Amy? Right, yes, basically. she is. Yeah, yeah. she's she's paying well, attention. Because for a long yeah. period of time, I had the approval button where I would push things to live. So it was like, it's on, mm. so it's on my head, literally, if I don't, you know. Now that's power. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's one. <laughs> and risk. That's one crazy thing about that team is that we had the go live button. I'm like, really? Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you vetted us enough to give us the go live button. <laughs> 
Hey, just before just before we get into Alexa in more detail, tell me about Alexa and how it works. You know, is it true AI in the sense that it, it makes up these jokes and stitches them together on the fly? Or is it more like you were just describing there that you would write jokes as as you'd intend them and that you would feed them into some sort of decision tree or something that Alexa would then use to determine what to tell? Yeah, the AI uh, for that particular system is on the back end serving the right content. When, when it comes to personality, that's something that AI quite hasn't quite cornered yet. I'm sure you've seen like they feed a bunch of garbage into an AI system and have it spout out poetry and it's just horrible. The yeah, there's with um, Alexa, we we have to write the jokes verbatim. But if somebody says, "Tell me a dog joke," um, she will look, you know, do this quick test across all of her systems and say, okay, this is a dog joke and this one is a good joke, so we'll surface this one. Um, and we have like a rating system on the back end, like what's a good joke, what's a mediocre joke? Because sometimes we'll serve up a joke and the next thing people will ask is, tell me a good joke. And we're like, oh, well, that, then we know, <laughs> we know the joke before wasn't great and we might want to take a look at that joke. <laughs> That's closing the loop right there. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Do you also listen for people's laughter? Is that a thing that's allowed? Or uh, no, no, no. We don't. We don't settings? at all. Um, at, but, so when right. when I say like people say, tell me a tell me a good joke, it's an aggregate of what was the next utterance, the next thing that somebody said. Uh, so we're not like looking at people's. And I say we. I'm not even there anymore. They're not looking at at people's individual responses. They're looking at aggregated responses, and there's millions of them in a given week. Mm. Yeah, the scale is uh, is quite something, isn't it? The scale is unbelievable. And I mean that that in itself would have been a really interesting territory design wise to navigate and to steer the product down different directions. And I was curious about this challenge of designing for something that scales to this degree, and what some of the unique constraints or or blockers or things that you and the team ran up against that others and other areas of design might not have even considered as a, a potential potential challenge. So the, one of the challenges for me and really for my predecessor, Farah, was we always wanted the device to have, I'm not saying her name because like there's one right there and I don't want it to talk to me, but we, we have always have the device. We wanted to have the device respond to insults in a manner that was, you know, standing up for itself. But are the executives to the highest level disagreed. They, they felt that that was being judgmental and that this should not be a judgmental device in your home. You should be able to say what you want. And, you know, if, if somebody is very, uh, it likes to curse a lot, you know, you don't judge them for that. You don't say, you know, I don't appreciate that language or whatever. And we tried to argue with, the, we tried. Their money, their money's still the same, right? Well, Everyone's I mean, dollar's the same. They're not paying the device itself is not very expensive, but there's subscriptions. So yeah, yeah, they're, they're still customers and we still, you know, want to not be judgmental, but we, you know, we, we wanted to present the argument that if, if they're cussing, that's fine. But if they're calling her slurs or threatening her uh, or something, we should be able to respond. And we wrote like a very eloquent defense of why that should be. And we wrote like what the prompts might be the, 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 responses she might say would be and it was because of the men up the chain it was you know declined now that's something that's interesting and hugely relevant i'm not sure if you've met eva penzi mook yes i have right so eva as you would probably know then wrote design for safety and we had a conversation i think it was the end of last year about how technology is being weaponized to enable domestic violence and abuse to happen 
And then recently, I think it was earlier this year, maybe in January, I'd sent Eva through an article that I'd seen where there were there was a company that would allow people to set up uh, AI friends or girlfriends in particular that it was disturbing to see the amount of abuse that people had fed into their AI and how men in, in particular were treating the AI. And I just, I'm really curious about this and what that says about some of some men in particular, but also what it says about the, the product to continue to permit that kind of input. Now I realize there's a lot to weigh up here, right? You know, there's the whole argument at the moment that's going on about what big tech's role is in censoring uh, content and deciding whether some views are more appropriate than others. And that's a, that is a tricky line to walk, particularly in an American, mm. demo, in an American democracy, mm. right? Because freedom of speech is quite a central tenant, not just in America, but to all democracies. And it's one of the things that enables our way of living to be the envy of many other people around the world because they don't experience that same degree of freedom. But tell me more about that. When did you realize that that was a thing that was happening? How did you feel when you realized that? What was it like presenting that view up the chain and receiving a no? And how did that go down amongst the team, particularly uh, women um, and, and the team and the organization? So learning what the most common utterances were, and an utterance is what a customer says to the device, and a prompt is what the device responds with. So learning that that some of the most common um, utterances were, shut up. I mean, that's, I, I get it. Sometimes she talks out of turn, but, you know, calling her names, uh, threatening her, you know, uh, you know, things like hello were very, very common. Things like thank you were very, very common, which is great. There is a balance of light and dark there. There are stories um, out of almost every country that Alexa's in where somebody has said, Alexa, I want to kill myself. And she's responded with the line to the, you know, the, the suicide hotline for that area and responded, Alexa, stop. <laughs> Alexa, please stop. <laughs> Very kindly. We're trying to have a conversation here. Yeah. So apparently she thinks I don't like it myself. Oh. Um, that, I'll have to go erase that. Oh, um, but You're going to get a call in a minute. Yeah, yeah, well, no, someone but will I mean, ring that's up. the thing is we can't really take an action. We, But we can express sympathy and we can say, you know, you know, you know, there's always someone to talk to. This is called the suicide hotline. You know, be safe. That that is great to have stories coming back for. We have saved people's lives doing that. And you have to balance that against the negative comments that primarily men make towards the device. And it doesn't. It's not really a statement to me. It's not a statement on the echo devices themselves. It's a statement on our society that so many men say so many vile things to the uh, the device. Um, and I'm sure there's there's women who do it too, but. Some of the utterances could almost only been have been said by men. Why is Alexa a her? Oh, that's a great question. They did a lot of test marketing with voices and tested what worked well and resonated well with all kinds of customers. And this particular voice, which is codenamed Nina voice, the, the default voice, was the one that was the most popular, that, that sounded the most trustworthy, like the, the one you'd most likely be friends with. And I don't think when I wasn't there for the inception of this product and I wasn't there for the launch of it, I came in, you know, a couple of years after, but there wasn't a lot of doubt about like, yeah, it's okay to put this thing out. There weren't a lot of other voices that the Siri was out there. And I think that was about it. We didn't think about the implications of having something that is your assistant being a woman 
and then if, it's gendered, yeah, that's gendered. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, they've released a male voice. They've released Samuel L. Jackson's voice, which is definitely not a subservient kind of sound. Um, and I, you know, I got to be part of of the you know that was my design team that that put all that experience out there for Samuel L. Jackson. And you know, it was it's so funny to get like pre- preliminary feedback from customers that there's not enough cussing. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, Have you heard him do the uh, the nursery rhyme? The go oh to sleep. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, you should ask him if you. <laughs> I imagine he's. If you have access to an on. Echo device and have and can get the Samuel L. Jackson voice, ask him to sing "Happy Birthday" because uh, oh, that's there's a, a lot one. of f bombs in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so make sure your young children people aren't around right. uh, or people that well, are and then a little that, bit sensitive to things. With having a voice that had explicit mode, basically, we also had to make sure that we had an on-off toggle for explicit mode. Like you have to opt into mm-hmm. explicit mode because we want to make sure. And, and we need to make it per device because if you have a device in your kid's room, maybe you don't want that to have it, but you want your device in your own room to have it. So there was a lot of considerations to take. But going back to how it felt um, about not being able to stand up, uh, not, not letting the device stand up for herself, I understood the, not, the part of not judging people. I, I did not agree with not being able to respond when something was you know, a threatening sound. Um, instead they just have her make that little doo-doo noise she makes, which means I heard you, but I don't care. But who, who knows that <laughs> outside of that team? So it was disappointing for sure, but there's, you know, one of the principles at Amazon is, uh, disagree and commit, which means that you may disagree with the decision that was made, but you all align that though you disagree, someone higher up the chain said, you have to do this. So you will move forward gracefully and graciously and, and get past it. I think that that's one of the tenets there is, is have backbone, disagree and commit. So you stand up for what you believe in. And when you're overruled, you go, all right, I've made my disagreement. I've given you my data as to why I disagree. We'll just move forward. Um, I'm not necessarily aligned with that. And that was a really hard one to, to swallow. It's almost, it almost sounds like a military organization. I, I would say all of the all of the tenants, the principles came from Jeff Bezos. Um, they were basically his way of thinking. So the entire company culture is very reflective of Bezos himself. So thinking of how not necessarily how Jeff sees the world, but you can see that expressed in the personality of of maybe some of the companies that he's involved with, in particular Amazon. If we draw that back down to Alexa and think about the principles that you were making design decisions with or by or trying to hold to what were some of those design principles that guided what you did and didn't do with the product um well we we had very definite principles about being non-judgmental about not being partisan that was really important that became much more important in 2016 but she's she's not a political partisan uh, she is a supporter of technology, literature, and science, which is interesting because for some reason in the United States, suddenly that became partisan. One of the tenets was she, she needed to be you know, accepting of people. And I, I wish I could remember all of them. I, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. They're completely internal tenants that we have for the product. And we, the, we use those tenants to weigh decisions on. So the, te- the tenants all have kind of like attention to them. Like, we won't do this, but we'll do this kind of you know, tension. So they helped us make decisions in cases like that. So like when Trump became president, yeah, we're not going to tell jokes about President Trump. People were asking. They were asking for a lot of jokes about President Trump. We did not serve any jokes about President Trump. We Well, you'd isolate half of your customer base, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. If you started to take a side. Yeah. yeah. 
This is the tension between technology that's so pervasive and our political system at the moment. And I'm not qualified really to go into this. It's just an interesting observation that at a company like Amazon, that where they do have the scale to reach into people's living rooms like this, and you do see that demand coming through, you have to be quite intentional about what you do and don't do. And whether or not you, you stray into that political arena, which many American companies in particular have chosen to on certain issues. Uh, and I can't imagine those decisions are faced lightly. It was no, they were not faced lightly. And it was it was uh, it was pretty heavy because it's not just the United States you're making this decision for. We Alexa's many many company co- countries. Sorry, they're in you know in all over Europe, in Australia, New Zealand, in Mexico, and Latin America. Um, so we would work together, and we had like kind of a central base, of repository of stories and songs and jokes and responses that were a core content, but then you had to localize for the regions. So figuring out yeah like in new zealand you gave us an australian accent sorry sorry <laughs> which didn't go yeah. down very well no it didn't. if only i'd known you when you were back then and I that wasn't me that was me. The, the voice itself comes from a different t- team <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah but uh, there's all kinds of decisions that you have to make like in well i will like french canadian voice versus the canadian voice there's just all kinds of nuances mm. And imagery that you show on the screened devices, like there's countries in which you cannot show any alcoholic imagery. So when we had a Stanley Cup image, you know, they created the Stanley Cup image with a cup and with champagne and confetti. And they're like, ooh, get the champagne off there because this country and this country do not allow images of alcohol. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow. So it's, it's just really interesting trying to navigate that, not just for the United States, but with your partners across all these different countries. Yeah, it's very difficult to please everyone. And one of the things that you were working at uh, with Alexa in particular was trying to make her more human as far as I understand so that the product could could become a trusted home companion. What does it mean to make something like Alexa more human? What does it actually look like? So what that looked like for me was being more inclusive. So uh, being a Mexican-American, when I came on the team, a a lot of the stuff I tested were like, you know, how do I celebrate Cinco de Mayo? Or, you know, uh, and I said it like totally on accident, because if you say, how do I celebrate Cinco de Mayo? It sounds kind of artificial, but yeah. How do you celebrate Cinco de Mayo? It was like a well-intended written by somebody who was clearly not Mexican. Well, I grab my maracas and get your family together for a fiesta. And I'm like, oh God, no. So I started looking into how we could be more inclusive in content that wasn't mainstream middle America. Uh, uh, And I had a a great person on the team, Jessamine, who was really invested into uh, making sure that everything was equitable and and inclusive in our content. So we started working with other areas of uh, other teams, like um, for the music. Um, If somebody said, how can I celebrate Cinco de Mayo? We'd say, Oh, we have a great Cinco de Mayo playlist for you. Let you know, would you like to listen to it? Or would you like to know the history of Cinco de Mayo and why it exists? Or, you know, would you like some recipes for Cinco de Mayo? Rather than just telling them, you know, something awkward from, you know, a, a gringa's point of view, they got education about the holiday. And this this became true for all of the different, like for Ramadan and for Yom Kippur and for different holidays that weren't just mainstream middle America. So any, even like the, oh, Festivus from Seinfeld, we like, we like combed through all of the different holidays that there are and tried, tried to be as inclusive as possible across actual cultures, Festivus is not, but, you know, Kwanzaa and, and Martin Luther King's day and, and, you know, going through all of them, making sure we had really sensitive answers for that, for that. And we worked with, there's a black employees network inside Amazon where we worked with them to create a skill for uh, black history month. 
so that if you you know ask about Black History Month, there's a it's this huge trove of facts about Black History Month that's in the voice of Black activists. Like they you know they have different people you know giving these sound bites for this. So that's how I wanted to make it better and more human. That's fascinating. I think you referred to white people as gringas. Uh, gringas. Gringas. Well, the white yeah. women are gringas. Oh, all right. So, gringos. If you gringos. Want to talk about so, so as a gringo, what is? I don't know what Cinco de Mayo is. What is the? What is this holiday? It's really a holiday that's more celebrated in Texas than it is in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a, a specific battle that happened in Mexico where a certain village won their freedom. It's very obscure. It's not It's not their Independence Day. Se- September 16th is their Independence Day. For some reason, Cinco de Mayo has been grasped onto as something really important, at least in Texas, to celebrate. And it's kind of moved its way north. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just an excuse to have margaritas, I think, and you know, lots of good food. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have to twist my arm too hard, that's for sure. Hey, can can people ever fully come to trust something that's sitting in their house and listening to them all oh, the I time? Doubt that. Um, mm. I doubt that. That's there's a whole team that's working on privacy and trust within the Alexa organization, where uh, they want people to understand that it's not listening to you and recording you all the time. What it is is the speaker opens to listen to ten second loops or you know some some number of second loops to hear if the wake word was spoken, and then it does doesn't remember any of that. This was the wake word spoken. What what is the, the wake, wake word? Spoken. Oh, oh, you can, you know, so Alexa is the wake word. Or you can make it computer or because, because you know, it was uh, Jeff Bezos loved Star, Star Trek. And he really wanted Alexa to be a lot like the computer on Star Trek when they when they say computer do this or whatever. Oh, that um, makes so, so much it. sense. That does make so much yeah. sense. I was actually just seeing <laughs> yeah. whether or not you would say, hey, Alexa, and whether or not your Alexa would wake up. But you've also mentioned something uh, there. Yeah, well, we'll have to try and keep it quiet because she, she does tend <laughs> <Yeah>. to interrupt. <laughs> You said yes. something there about Jeff Bezos loving Star Trek. Now, I also yeah. know that you are a huge Trekkie, and I'm maybe not quite as big, but I'm pretty big. I'm pretty big up there. And we have a mutual love, the two of us, for the next generation in particular. Yes. In fact, you love it so much that one of your recent talks that you've given is titled after one of the main characters, Deanna Troy. What is it about? Deanna Troy in particular that you identify with so much? The way that she is empathic and non-judgmental in the way she deals with people. And she's got gray hair. Oh, yeah. Does she ever? <laughs> Never to be seen again, actually. We've moved off that kind of yeah. per- permed look. I'm sure it'll come back around. Right. Something, yeah, yeah. She, she is, isn't she? Yeah. And how have you channeled or brought forward your inner Deanna Troy in the way in which you have led your teams? I'm working... Every day I'm working on active listening because I enjoy talking so much. Uh, I have to be very conscious of active listening. And that means not listening with what your response will be in mind, but listening to understand what the other person is saying and then formulating your response. Like Alexa. Um, Yes. And like improv, (laughs) you have to actively listen. If you're not actively listening, you're going to drop the scene and you're going to screw it up. You know, that's great practice is listening to what the other person is giving you. And it's really great. A lot of what like career coaches do is they reflect back to you what you said and like what they heard. And oftentimes people will say something and you reflect back to them what you heard and they're like, that's not what I, wait, oh, that is what I said. Oh my gosh, that's right. You know, and they're revealing things about themselves or about their desires, about their motivations that they didn't realize. But you picked up on it because you're really listening to what they're saying. Do you ever intentionally reflect back something that's not quite what someone said to you? No, I think that's I think that's manipulative. I would not do that. 
And what is it about the reflection of what people are saying back to them that helps them to realize something that they might not have realized when they were first saying those words? You know, there's there's what people know about you, what you know about you, and what nobody knows about you. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when people are talking, they're voicing things that they don't know about themselves. And if you're listening, you hear that thing that they don't know about themselves, and you speak it back to them, and they're like, oh, man, you're right. <laughs> you're a genius. Um, and it's a revelation. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And suddenly you're a genius. That's why everybody's getting these, you know, life coaches and career coaches, because be, having that talent to be able to really listen and reflect back, it's not everybody can do that. And then suddenly, you know, like you're, people really love being listened to because we don't listen to people enough in this world. Everybody wants to have their say and their, their spotlight, you know. And it's been a difficult world to be in, in the last couple of years in particular. And it's, yeah. it's, it's always been difficult, right? Life, as you get older, you realize it's, I think the saying here is it's not a box of fluffy ducks. And I'm not sure if that travels well outside of New Zealand, but you, it, you, it's adorable, but it's not a saying that we have here. Maybe we should, we should write to the Alexa team and see if they can pop that in there somewhere. Um, well, you, we usually say it, it's not, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. Right. So that's exactly what that translates to. <laughs> you sort of become conscious of this as, as you get a bit older and you have a few bumps and maybe you lose a few friends or someone close to you, you know, these sort of things come up and stress us. And in the last couple of years, something that we've all been through together is the the big P word, the pandemic. And this has taken a toll on everyone. And, and I don't want to necessarily go into this um, in any more detail than I'm about to. But what I wanted to talk to you about in particular was the toll or the stress that it puts leaders under. And as leaders, we're often looked to for strength and as the people that have their shit together, so to speak. And one of the things that you said that I thought was quite insightful, there's many things, but this is one of them, and I'll quote you now, is that you need to be keenly aware of your own state of mind when talking with your direct reports. If you are in a stressed or anxious state of mind, reschedule things. Yep. That for me, I don't know, I had a moment with that and I'm like, there, that's, that is some really great advice right there. And my question is, is that can leaders afford to be anything less than their best during a time like this that's been going on for so long when the people that they are leading are looking to them for strength and answers? I think it depends on your audience. Like most answers in design, it depends. If you're talking in a one-on-one forum with somebody, it's important to be yourself. It's okay to show that you're having a hard time too. Otherwise, you're inhuman. And if you're not having a hard time, your teammates will think, well, gosh, why am I having a hard time? Maybe there's something wrong with me. So it's important to, and that's the hard part is you need, you need to be vulnerable with people. And you have to also measure as a leader, how much information is enough, but not too much. Like where can, where do I need to cut this off and make sure that I'm not burdening them, but I'm helping them. So it's a very fine balance. And it takes a lot of, I guess, emotional intelligence to be able to do that. I don't always, I don't always get it right. I, I do my best, but how do you, you know. how do you know when you've got it wrong? Um, that's a great question. I think if somebody gets scared, you've definitely gotten it wrong. <laughs> if they start moving um, towards the door, <laughs> you've got it, no. you've got it wrong. No, I mean, if that's a really tricky question because everybody deserves some grace. So if you get it wrong, hopefully the person you get it wrong with understands that. And you just have to kind of learn and reflect on how successful something was. For me, I have people on my team 
who I'm really close to, who are like my touchstones. And I say, how is the team doing? How am I doing with the team? You know, uh, could I do something better? And I'm, I'm open to feedback from anybody, but that I have specific people who are just really good with their colleagues and are really in touch with things across the board. And I can say, how's the team and how am I doing with the team? And they'll give me honest feedback. And is this in a one-on-one context that you're having these conversations? Yeah. 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 Or sometimes if it's all like my most senior design uh, team members, sometimes we'll have like a small group talk conversation, but usually it's one-on-one because people are just, they feel so much more free to be open in a one-on-one. So we don't want to be like data as leaders, but is it more, (laughs) is it more important to be authentic and vulnerable or to be professional and certain? I think there's benefits to both. Again, it depends on the situation. Mm. If you're in front of a large group, you should be authentic and certain. <laughs> you know? I like what you did there. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but but you know, it's not terrible to show vulnerability in front of a large group, but you, the, but that's when you have to show a little vulnerability because it gets uncomfortable for them. Like it shouldn't be something where it's a catharsis for you. It should it should be you sharing that hey, I'm human too. Yeah, fairly good point. Just before we move on to something else, tell me about meeting Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who's also known as Sir Patrick Stewart. That was awesome. That was like the best day ever. Um, like <laughs> I, I didn't bet. even realize Jeff Bezos was in the room. I'm like, Patrick Stewart. Um, but, <laughs> but they, if Jeff's you know, listening to this, he'll be crushed. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think he'll care. Um, but, you know, I'm a huge Shakespeare fan, too. My, my emphasis in d- my um, master's degree was directing Shakespeare. So I knew Patrick Stewart long before he was Jean-Luc Picard, as far as I knew of him. And when they let me, when they told me that I was going to get to meet him and he was going to come into our, you know, our joke review session, I was like, what? What? Oh, my God, am I wearing the right thing? <laughs> I was just really, I was really excited because they don't really let you know far ahead of time because they don't want the word to get out. And they don't want like a crowd together. And so when Patrick Stewart came in the room, I shook his hand and I said, I just want you to know that your Claudius on the BBC version of Macbeth was the best, most human Claudius I've ever seen. And he said, oh, my dear, thank you. And I was like, oh my God, he's awesome. Because he's just so humble. And he's just like, he started blushing. And I was like, oh, so cute. You really spoke <laughs> to him, right? Because he probably doesn't get something like that very often. And that's how he no, started, yeah, right? He's he a Shakespearean yeah. actor. Yeah, he started with the Royal Shakespeare Company and doing productions there, yeah. Have you washed um, your hands since? Mm, yes, of course. COVID. <laughs> yeah, you have to. <laughs> yes, okay, have it's to mandatory. <laughs> yeah, but but it was you know I have a picture I'll never forget, and you know um, he was very complimentary. We um, I played him some Shakespeare joke from that we had written, and he laughed, you know, and he he thought they were amusing. And then I think a uh, memorable thing about that was initially uh, Jeff Bezos was opposed to Alexa having much of a personality. He wanted her to be like the computer on Star Trek, just kind of factual. So my whole team shouldn't exist. You know, the whole personality team shouldn't really exist. But because the customer said, no, we want this. I mean, we could see from all these failed utterances that we couldn't answer of, how are you? Good morning. You know, all, all these things people were saying, sing me a song, tell me a joke people wanted a personality. And this was, of of course, before my time, the team before me, like I stand on the shoulders of giants who built this from the ground up for the couple of years before I joined. But with Jeff in the room, he actually said, and he directed this to me and it wasn't just me, but I took it because it was Jeff. And he he said, you know, thank you so much for giving Alexa such an amazing personality. And I, I was kind of stunned. I don't know that I could have said anything at the time because 
I, I knew the history, but he didn't really want a personality for it. So it was kind of cool. Do you remember what you said to him? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I just <laughs> said thank you or, you know, something. I don't know. I tell you what, if Alexa had a, um, a Patrick Stewart voice, like a Samuel L. Jackson voice, I think I would have to get a few echoes around the home. For that sure. would be awesome. I would yeah. love that. But I, I don't think the last I heard when they asked him about that, he's not interested. Amy, normally I finish these conversations on a serious note, but today, mm. given what we've just been talking about and given your strong input into Alexa's personality, in particular jokes, I thought I'd mix things up a little bit. Now, this is a little unfair as I had a person on the inside who fed me some state secrets. Oh, no. what, is, <laughs> what is your favorite dad joke, the one that you weren't allowed to put on Alexa? Oh, my gosh. Oh, you know what? It's not dead anymore because we were able to put it in Samuel L. Jackson's voice. Ah. But I can't say it. I can't say it. You've got to say it. We have to say it. We'll bleep out. We'll bleep out anything. I don't remember the whole thing. You're putting me on the spot. (laughs) Um, Well, but. That's unfair. That's unfair of me. Any any parting thoughts for design leaders that are at a point in their career where those little voices, are, well, they might not be little, they might be screaming at them to make a change. Now, what would you say to them? For design leaders or just yeah, designers those in general? Designers in general that may be considering leadership or, or any other career change. Oh, okay. Um, well, you just jump in. The best way to do it is to, to jump in, but talk to a lot of people talk to people you admire who are doing what you want to do and and people you know who are doing what you want to do or people in parallel careers who have moved on about their experiences uh, and then jump in. You can, you can organize a conference. You can be a, a chair of a conference and learn what it's like to manage something like that. If you can manage that kind of chaos, you can manage a team. It's really and important. Ba- baby, baby steps, but making the steps towards where you want to be, they're important. Yeah, I love it. It's a great place to end on. Amy, thank you. This has been such a great conversation. It's actually been exactly what I needed today. I really (laughs) appreciate you being so generous with your stories and your insights today. Thank you, Brennan. This has been a pleasure too for me. Oh, I'm glad you've had a good time. I'm sorry to have put you on the spot a couple of times today, but it's been a wonderful conversation. I should have known to prepare a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure at some point in our future, we'll we'll get to do some improv together. I can't imagine that I'll be any good at it, but I'm willing to give it a go. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the best improv is trial by fire. So you just have to do it. <laughs> well, let's, we'll make that happen. Amy, okay. if people want to find out more about you and all the wonderful things that you've been doing, also about Boxes and Arrows and, and your upcoming conference talks, of which I believe you have three coming up, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, that's a great question because my amymarquez.com really just shunts you over to my Medium blog. Twitter, I'm at Amy Marquez on Twitter uh, and I make a lot of updates there. Perfect. Thank you, Amy. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Amy and Boxes and Arrows and all the other great stuff that we've spoken about today. Maybe I'll also be able to put into the show notes that joke if Amy can recall it at some point. So keep your eyes peeled for that. I'll have to ask Samuel. All right. Yeah, ask Samuel and get back to me. If you enjoyed if you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast. Subscribe as well and pass it along to someone else in your network that might get benefit from these long 
long-ranging deep dive conversations into design and all the other things that surround it. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. My profile link is at the bottom of the show notes on the podcast platforms and on YouTube, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz if you're in the United States or NZ if you're in England. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey.